Take your Bibles, if you would. We are going to be in the Gospel of John tonight. I know we have been using Romans uh, as we've been going through this study, but tonight uh, we're concluding our study, and we're going to be looking at how social justice really, the philosophy that's out there today, uh, really goes against the grain of gospel ministry out of a church And so the passage that we're going to look at tonight, I believe, really describes that and shows that. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter number 12, and we're going to begin reading with verse number 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 12, and we're going to begin reading with verse number 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my burying has she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always." Much more, uh, much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. As we conclude our series tonight, we're going to look at the death of worship. We've been seeing the things that this philosophy of social justice kills off concerning the gospel. And tonight we're going to look at the death of worship. So let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit of God to help us as we go through this study tonight. Lord, we're so thankful for the opportunity that we have in having the truth of your word and being able to take all of the situations of life, all of the philosophies of our world, and filter them through the lens of the truth of Scripture. Lord, we understand there's pressure out there, and we understand that there is deceitfulness out there, and we understand that there are lies out there, and it can become very confusing, and it can become very difficult to stand up under that pressure. But Lord, help us to be people of your truth who have discernment and judgment, not based upon our feelings and not based upon just our experiences, but based upon what your word says and declares to us. So, Lord, help us tonight as we learn, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Tonight, again, we're going to look at the death of worship. And what we really see happening in this passage of Scripture is we see that people's focus is not on the gospel in this passage. People's focus isn't on the fact that a man had been raised from the dead, speaking of Lazarus, The focus degenerated down to how can we practically help another person apart from Jesus? How can we meet people's needs without Jesus being in the picture? 
In fact, this is really what's being thought about in this passage of Scripture. Why are we spending so much time, energy, and money on the gospel when we could spend that time, energy, and money on practically trying to meet other people's needs? And this is the problem with the philosophy of social justice when it is embraced by the church, is it degrades the worship of Jesus and places us as the saviors in people's lives. Now, we've seen that happen as we've been explaining the philosophy of social justice for the past several weeks. We understand that at its root, it is a philosophy that is secular. It is apart from God. It is a philosophy that positions people who are thought of as in an elite status, the educated or enlightened elite, and these people occupy the space of God. Instead of God being on the top and us getting his truth, these people that elevate themselves and begin to act out this social justice then are qualified to be able to identify the problems that exist in the world and in the culture. And the way that these problems are identified in the world and in the culture is by finding areas where people are victims. And whether these are people that are victims economically, or if they are victims educationally, or if they are victims based upon their sexuality or their race, they find people in different victim pools that they then begin to position against others and they try to right wrongs based on man's standards. But how many of you know, no matter how hard we work, we can never undo what our sin has done. We can never wipe the slate clean. We will never be able to do enough to pay the price for our own sins. But how many of you are glad there was one who could pay the price for our sins. And that's why the gospel will always be superior to social justice because social justice relies on the educated or enlightened elite to be able to hand down knowledge in order to fix men's problems by requiring that people repair their bad deeds against other people. It's an impossible situation. And tonight we're going to look at when the church embraces that philosophy, how very quickly the gospel begins to erode from the church and the church is placed in the place of God. And instead of the church going out to give people the gospel, the gospel is devalued and the church tries to go out and fix other people's problems. In fact, we use this terminology for that type of theology and we call it social gospel. Social gospel is much like social justice, except it takes place in the church. Social gospel says, apart from Jesus, yeah, we'll tack Jesus onto it, but it's not really about his shed blood. It's not really about his sacrifice. It's not really about him rising again. It's not really about people needing to get saved from their sin. It's about me going and feeding the poor. It's about me going and building houses for the homeless. It's about me going and putting clothes on people who have no clothes. It's about me going and getting clean water for people who have no clean water. And if we can rescue them from their plight, 
then we become their saviors. Now, how many of you understand that we should have no problem feeding the poor? And we should have no problem providing clean water to people who need clean water. And we should have no problem going and meeting people's needs. How many of you understand that was a big part of Jesus' earthly ministry? He went and he met needs. He went and healed people who needed to be healed. But he didn't make that their salvation. He said, I have come. Not that you would be healed from your ailment. He said, I have come. Not that you could have bread and fish. He said, I have come. Not so you could have water. He said, I have come that ye might have life and that ye might have it more abundantly. And how many of you know our life doesn't come from clean water? Our life comes from the Creator who gave His life for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it comes through the message of His gospel. So tonight in this passage, we see real time what happens in ministry when a philosophy of social justice or social gospel is adopted over the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at this passage again tonight, and we'll break this down and reveal where these problems lie when we uh, uh, adopt this social justice, social gospel. First of all, I want us to see tonight that in this death of worship, we see a devaluing of Jesus. In this death of worship we see a devaluing of the person of Jesus. Let's revisit our text here again this evening. Notice with me again verse number one. I love this. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead, there they made him a supper. How many of you are glad Jesus can raise people from the dead? He ought to be happy about that tonight because one day he's going to have to raise you and one day he's going to have to raise me. And how many are glad he can get that done? All right. And if you're saved tonight, he's already brought you from death to life. So this is the backdrop of our story tonight. The backdrop of our text is the resurrection of Lazarus, which was a precursor to the resurrection of Jesus. You'll remember the story. Remember hearing this in Sunday school, maybe even had the flannel graph teacher that put all the pieces on the flannel graph board for you. But you'll remember Mary and Martha. And you remember that these were friends of Jesus and they had a brother named Lazarus. And, and we, we were introduced first to Mary and Martha when Mary and Martha had Jesus in their home and, and one was serving and didn't come in and was angry because one was sitting at the feet of Jesus and got upset about that. And Jesus kind of taught some lessons there about how important it was to be with him. Now, we're getting the same lesson here in John chapter number 12, except we're getting it from the vantage point that now Jesus has revealed himself as the life giver because their brother Lazarus had died and he rose him from the dead four days after he'd been put in the tomb. And that's the backdrop for all of this. And what does this do? It lifts Jesus up as the resurrection and the life. It lifts Jesus up as the fulfillment of the gospel. It lifts Jesus up as the Savior of the world. So that's the backdrop of our text tonight. Now notice what takes place here. In verse number two, there's a supper that's made. Martha again is serving. Lazarus, who had been dead, is now sitting at the table with him. And how many of you are glad if you're saved tonight, you've been raised from the dead and now you're sitting at the table with Jesus in fellowship with him. 
What a great picture of a new life in Christ. Raised from the dead, raised from our sins, and in fellowship with the Savior. Now, it's interesting what takes place here. Verse number 3, Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly. And you can look up kind of the rough cost of this in today's um, economy. But the Bible says it here. It's very costly. It was notable for, for her to take this out and dump it on Jesus' feet and take her hair and wipe down Jesus' feet. This was a real ultimate sign of worship to Jesus. And let me just remind you, there was good reason why she was worshiping Jesus. He had just risen her brother from the dead. Now, if your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad had passed away and someone came four days later and rose him from the dead, you'd probably want to do something special for them too. But this was really an outpouring of her understanding of who Jesus was now. This is indeed the resurrection and the life. This is the one that is worthy of my worship. And everything about what she did pointed to the fact that she was worshiping her Savior. She poured out that ointment. That ointment fragrance filled the room and she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. She was worshiping Jesus and for good reason. And by the way, if you're saved tonight, and you've experienced the gift of saving grace that you do not deserve, how many of you understand that's reason enough to be compelled to worship our Savior? You know, I love you all, and I love coming and being with you. I think that's an extension of God's grace for us to be around each other and serve one another and fellowship together at church. But can I tell you, even if you weren't here tonight, I'd be here because of what Jesus did for me. Even if you weren't here on Sunday, I'd be here because of what Jesus... He's, he's, he's worthy of my worship. He's worthy of my sacrifice. He's worthy of my time. He's worthy of my attention. He's worthy of my finances. He's worthy of everything that I have because he gave everything he had for me. That's why we worship him. He's worthy of it. So here she is performing this ultimate measure of worship. She's pouring out this sacrifice to the Lord. And then we have verse number four. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. How many of you understand it's important that who he is is described in this passage? Because we all can look back from where we're at today and we know who Judas Iscariot is. We know what he did. We know where his heart was. But as he's standing here with these other disciples, they had not yet identified him as the one. He was just one of the disciples. He was just Judas. He's, he's the treasurer. He's the one holding the money for us. He's the one that we go to when we want Chick-fil-A. He holds the bag. This is who he is. But already we understand that he's been identified in Scripture. And he says this. Notice, verse 5. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? And right there, when he spoke those words, he devalued Jesus. Right there, when he spoke those words, he said, Jesus was not worthy of this form of worship. 
It was too much. And he says something that quite honestly appeals to all of our flesh. Because how many of you are like me and you don't even like spilling a cup of milk, right? You do the math. Hey, that was like 0.200015 cents right there. Let alone this costly spikenard of oil that was just poured out wastefully on Jesus' feet. Now, why couldn't we take that and feed 5,000 people if we wanted to who were poor? And how many of you understand the logic in that tonight? I mean, let me just say this. We like to throw Judas under the bus and the other disciples because in another passage, the other disciples, and we'll talk about this in a moment, are kind of convinced of the same thing and think, yeah, why, why don't we do that? If we had a business meeting tonight and this was put before us, I'd venture to say there'd be some discussion amongst all of us about, well, what could we better do with that money instead of pouring it out on feet? Right? I mean, that's great and all, and, and maybe there's a place for that, but, but what could we do with that? And, and the whole point of her pouring this out that she owned to Jesus was she was saying, you are worthy of my highest worship, and then out of Judas' mouth says, why are we doing this? Why couldn't we sell it and then use those funds to feed the poor? And in that moment, Jesus was devalued. And in that moment, the gospel was devalued. Why? Because it doesn't point to this fact that Jesus is more valuable than money for the poor because he is the resurrection and the life. I love this in verse number one again. He raised Lazarus from the dead. The religious people had the same problem, but for a different reason. We learned at the end of our text here, the devaluing of Jesus. They wanted to kill Lazarus because Lazarus was pointing people to Jesus because Jesus raised him from the dead. So you've got Judas, the social gospel guy, and you've got the Pharisees, the elite religious people, all on the same team against Jesus, devaluing him. And wanting to erode the message of the gospel. And that's the problem with social justice. When we devalue Jesus so that we can be people's savior by feeding them, by providing material things for them, by making them comfortable, by getting them things, and we take the worship away from Jesus to do that, we're not giving them something that can raise them from the dead. We're giving them something that might give them another day or another week or another year or even another decade. But what they really need is they need to know the one that can give them life. And so everything that we do shouldn't lift up our ability to feed the poor or lift up our ability to clean water or lift up our ability to clothe those that need clothing. Everything that we do should lift up the cross of Christ because the Bible says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. But this whole system, whether it's religious or whether it's secular, whether it's social justice or whether it's social gospel, it puts man in the place of God, it puts man as the Savior, and it devalues who Jesus really is. So Judah says, why are we doing this? 
Why do we pour out this oil at Jesus' feet? Why didn't we sell it and feed the poor instead? We see a devaluing of Jesus. Secondly, we see a destroying of ministry. A destroying of ministry. Notice with me, if you would, here in verse number six, Jesus here again is, is, is responding to this. Notice, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my burying has she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. And this is the thing. Jesus is pointing out the fact that no matter how many poor people we fed with that ointment that was poured out, there would always still be more poor people to feed. And how many of you know that that is the state of our lost, sinful, and broken world today? There are always going to be poor. There are always going to be hungry people. There are always going to be people who need clothing. There are always going to be people who need more material things in order to sustain life. And where we can do that, that's wonderful. But if we don't make the gospel the main thing, they'll eat one day and they'll die the next. And if they don't know Jesus, they'll be in hell because they have not come to know the one that can give them life. And Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. And this is where Christians get guilted in to grabbing on to man-made philosophies over the gospel. It's because how many of you know it's very compelling to see a hungry person in front of you? It's very compelling to be presented with some kind of social need that exists out there. And I believe that there's something in every believer, a tender heart, a heart of compassion that wants to help meet people's needs. But what we have to be very careful of is not be fooled by the devil that that material need or that earthly need is their greatest need. The greatest need that any person has is a spiritual need. And they need to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And what happens is, is when we turn to social gospel instead of the Christ-honoring, worshipful gospel, what happens is, is it destroys ministry. Why? Because it takes the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and moves it to something less than important. The most important thing becomes, how can I rescue this person or how can I rescue that person? You know, there are a lot of churches that will send out foreign missionaries. And listen, our missionaries, they, they engage with people's needs just like Jesus did. I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't engage with people's needs. But we should do so only in the context of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I love that we were able to send the summers from our church down to Guatemala. And as they were down there, they identified some needs that some of the local pastors had that would make them more effective in being able to get the gospel out. And we were able to get together as a church and purchase a piece for an oven. And now they're down there installing that piece for an oven. And it's making that business viable where people are coming for bread. And they're able to give them bread, but they're also able to give them the bread of life. We have uh, missionaries that we support in Africa that have an orphanage that will house children who have no home. 
But as they house those children who have no home, they're being shared the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, they're getting saved. And now where they had no father, now they have a heavenly father. So I'm, I understand that needs should be met and that Christians should find ways to meet those needs, but not at the expense of making the gospel a secondary thing. And we have churches today that not only minister defectively because they're destroying the gospel ministry by making felt needs a priority, but also they're diminishing salvation because they are substituting material salvation for spiritual salvation. And many of these people that eat the physical bread think that somehow they're more spiritual because some Christian gave them material bread, but they've never really given them the bread of life. And it confuses people because the Christians are teaching the people that are in need that their physical needs are more important than their spiritual needs. And so it destroys ministry. We must keep the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ the priority. Jesus says, the reason we did not sell this and give it to the poor and the reason that I allowed her to pour it on my feet is because giving it to the poor would not solve the poor's problem. I have come to solve the poor's problem and the problem that the poor or the needy or even the rich and the wealthy have is the problem that they do not have eternal life and I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So we don't need social gospel. We don't need social justice. We need to know who Jesus is. And let me just say something. When Jesus is properly worshipped in our life, we become an effective witness for him. Our ministry grows exponentially. Notice what's happening here in this passage. Because Lazarus is now sitting in fellowship with Jesus People are coming and thronging around Jesus, not just to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus, whom Jesus rose from the dead. And you know what? Maybe they'll come to see you too because you have a testimony that you've been raised from the dead and now your life is showing the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't make the gospel a lesser ministry the gospel needs to be the main ministry and all material ministry needs to flow from the gospel being in its proper place. So we see here that there is a destroying of ministry when we begin to look at ministry as a social experiment. Lastly, this evening, and we'll be done, we see deceiving motives. We see deceiving motives. I want to spend some time on this because we see the true heart of what ultimately takes place when God is eliminated from the picture and we place ourselves in the position as the Savior. Notice what's revealed here again about Judas. Verse number six. This Judas said, not that he cared for the poor. So Judas said, why are we wasting this? Why are we taking this costly ointment, pouring it out on feet when we could sell it and feed the poor? And you know, we'd like to think that he's saying that out of the goodness of his heart. We'd like to think that he's saying that because he really cared for people. But can I tell you something? 
People who are the enlightened elite rarely care for the people that they're using to stay in positions of power. Many times they're only doing what they're doing because they're thieves and they're robbers and they're holding the bag. And by the way, that's true of human government and that is true of religious people as well. Because there's two groups of people here that are using people to stay in power. First of all, you have Judas, who is the betrayer. He's not really a person of God. He's not really concerned with the gospel. He could care less about Jesus going to the cross. In fact, very soon after that, he's going to betray Jesus with a kiss and 30 pieces of silver. Talk about devaluing Jesus. But that's where his heart is. He doesn't care about the poor, and he doesn't care about Jesus, and he doesn't care about anybody but himself because he's a thief and a robber. And can I tell you, there are a lot of ministries out there that are like that today. They care about sending you a sweaty hanky as long as you give them $25,000. Pull your chair a little closer to the TV, plant a seed in my pocket, and then you see and watch and wait what God's going to do to bless your life. And there are charlatans out there today that, that position themselves to be people of God and they're not people of God and they're putting on a show and they're using people and they don't care about the wounded and they don't care about the lame and they don't care about the poor. They care about the show they can put on and how they can line their own pockets by positioning Jesus in their life. And it's wrong and it's dishonest and it's no different than what Judas was doing right here. You know, even in the secular realm with government where they say, hey, we're going to take from you and we're going to give to others and we're going to have equity instead of equality and equal outcomes because we want to build this utopia because we're the enlightened elite and you guys don't know how to manage your affairs and we need to find victims and we need to find oppressors and we're going to put them at war with each other and we're going to try to make everything right through that. They don't care about the gay person. They don't care about the, the people of different race. They don't care about all of these different victim pools. What they care is about their own power because if they really cared for people, they would understand that what they need more than any government or any leader or any religion is that they need Jesus. Because that's the only one who can make all things new and whole. But unfortunately, they take people's brokenness and they use it to keep themselves in power. And that's what Judas was doing. He did not care about the poor person. He only cared about the bag that he was holding because he was a thief and a robber. And let me tell you, unfortunately, we need to pray for him. And we need to pray for our country. And we need to pray for our culture. And we need to pray for Christianity as a whole. But unfortunately, a lot of what we see going on in government and in these religions that are using people is we are seeing people being robbed and being pillaged and being degraded and cheapened so that people can maintain their position of power and authority and wealth. And that, by the way, goes against the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see this deceiving motivation. Notice with me again, verse number six, this Judas said not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and 
bear what was put therein. Drop down to verse number 9. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that Jesus was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. How many of you know that is the epitome of corruption? We're going to murder this guy so that we can still have our followers. Here Jesus just miraculously raised this man from the dead, and now we're conspiring to murder him, not because they obviously cared for Lazarus or that these people knew the truth, but they wanted to maintain their position. And, and how many of you are praying for me that I don't get too far off track tonight, okay? I'm trying to stay in a, in a lane here. I'm praying real quick to see if I should say something or not. The, 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 hey, don't, don't goad me. I'll go somewhere I don't want to, okay? Um, it is not a conspiracy to say that hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Because the Bible says that. And what we see playing out in our culture, in our government, in, in, in churches that are not connected to the gospel but are connected to control of people as well, what we're seeing today is we're seeing a deception take place where they're trying to position that it's for the good of people, but in actuality, they're robbing every single person that they put in whatever category they want to put them in from their own autonomy, and they're putting them in a position of control because they don't care about the people, they care about their position. And let me just say this, this is how far man's hearts will go. They will kill people to get the job done. Hey, how else do you explain the literal murder of millions of babies? How do you explain the genocide that takes place in cultures that are run by totalitarian, godless regimes? How do you explain the cultural wars that are fomented by things like critical theory and critical race theory where you're literally training people to hate each other for generations so that you can divide the power and take control of people. How can you explain that? Other than by looking at this very passage of Scripture and seeing that the secularist Judas was going to do whatever he had to do to line his pockets and that the religious elite were going to do whatever they had to do to stay in power. And on either side of the road, there is a horrible ditch there that social justice and social gospel take us into. 
And that's why as a church, we have to be very guarded and very careful not to allow ourselves to be convinced that, oh, this is a great thing, and oh, we're going to take care of people, and you know what? I have done some bad things, and I need to reevaluate who I am. No, you don't have to reevaluate who you are. The Bible already says who you are. We are sinners, and we're all equally sinners. And we can all equally be saved if we will turn to the gospel, if we will turn to Jesus, the one who can give us life. And then how many of you are glad once you're saved, your sins are forgiven, and you don't have to pay off your sins anymore? And now your identity is that you are a child of God. And now what should we do? We should worship him unabashedly. We should pour out that ointment. We should pour out our lives. Oh, but wait a minute. Why don't you, instead of focusing on Jesus, why don't you focus on this practicality and that practicality and that practicality? No, 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 no. Let's stay focused on the gospel. And how many of you know when Jesus gets involved, he takes care of all the practical things? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then what? All these things shall be added unto you. They need Jesus first so that they can have everything else put in its proper place. But this is the totality of the deception. Man thinks that they can be God. And how many of you understand it never works out well when man puts himself in the position of God? Because it's at the expense of all of those that are under them. And they end up like this, not caring about the situation or the person or the individual but caring about the bag that they hold and what they can get out of it. And may our lives as believers not be what's in it for me, Christianity. Christianity on my terms, Christianity by my flavor, Christianity by the way I package it for myself. May we have an attitude where we're willing to literally pour ourselves out at Jesus' feet and say, it may cost me something, it may cost me time, it may cost me talent, it may cost me treasure, it may cost me all that I have, but Jesus, I'm pouring myself out to you. Hey, don't do that. You can instead go do this and feed the poor and go do that. Hey, put Jesus first and all these things shall be added unto you. But Jesus has to be in his proper place. And we've learned throughout this series that the devil is very deceptive and is very clever. And in fact, in another passage in the Gospels, all of the other disciples pretty much, or at least many of them, were on board with Judas when he said it. Judas said, why, don't we, why did we pour this out? We could have sold it and fed it to the poor. And they're like, that's right, that's right. Do you see how easy even people with a good heart can get sucked into a bad idea because all they see is the felt need that's in front of them? And that's why we have to be careful, because I think that, that there are churches with people who have good hearts, but they're not in the word maybe they need to be. They're not following the spirit the way that they need to be. And they'll be pray for things like social justice and social gospel. And we just got to be careful that we don't devalue Jesus, that we don't destroy the true trajectory of ministry, and that we're not deceived in our motives. We've got to stay true to who Jesus is and what his saving grace is. And I'll tell you what, if we have a ministry that lifts up the cross and lifts up the resurrection, 
we can see people's lives truly changed because instead of being dead but fed, they'll be alive in Christ. They'll be alive in Christ. Let's all stand this evening with our heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around. Heads bowed, eyes closed, no one looking around. Maybe tonight, as we see what's going on in our world, your heart's distressed and it's torn. And it seems like any direction that you want to try to be a help or you want to serve, it's cast into some kind of frame of philosophy where it's confusing to know if you're even doing the right thing. Well, let's simplify it tonight. Let's make Jesus the main thing. Let's remember what we came from. We didn't need just bread. We needed the bread of life. We didn't need just water. We needed a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. We didn't need to just be healed physically. We needed the great physician to heal us spiritually. And when we focus on who Jesus is and we pour our life out to him, the natural result of that is the aroma will fill the room and people will come to see that life. And when people grab onto that life, whether they're rich or whether they're poor, whether they're starving or whether they're full, they now have a home in heaven. And they have a God that promises them, I will never leave you or forsake you. They have a God that promises them, I will supply all of your need according to my riches and glory.